Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are going to be discussing, well, answering your questions about jail cars a month in the country. As usual, you delivered with plenty of great questions for us to discuss um, as we conclude our conversation on this book. And we will get to that in just a minute. First of all, though, I want to remind you that you, uh, your next book on this, this show here is uh, one of Heidi's favorites. It's called Loris, and we will have a schedule out for that here pretty soon. And then after that, we're going to do A Gentleman in Moscow, and then we're going to do My Name is Asher Lev, and that will take us to the end of the year, which also means that you are clamoring, you are uh, driving for us to let you know what books we're going to discuss next year. So I just want to let you know that that is going to be coming soon. We're going to have a live recording on which we whittle down the long list to the actual list, the, the final list, so you can plan accordingly once you hear that. So that'll be coming soon. Uh, we also, of course, have our East of Eden conversations over on Close Reads HQ on Substack. That's closereads.substack.com, where Heidi, Sean Johnson, and I are discussing Steinbeck's wonderful novel, East of Eden. The next episode of that just went up on Friday. And uh, so um, those conversations have been wonderful. And uh, we, are, we are all back from the conference. The last week we were off. Um, so we're glad to be back with you. But Let's do a quick conference review. Uh, Heidi, how was the conference for you? And how many scarves, how many neckerchiefs did you see Tim wear? Yeah. I was disappointed in the low amount of neckerchiefs. I didn't see a single one. And I had my jokes, my jabs already. So I don't know what was up with that, Tim. But nevertheless, I had a great conference. Good conversations, lots of great talks. Uh, and it was, it was just really delightful. Tim, well, um, can you can, uh, defend yourself in terms of your cowardice? Well, I was just going to say, I don't have any real excuse other than cowardice. <laughs> I just, well, it was hard to keep them cool. Like it was, would have been hard to really keep a frozen neckerchief frozen. So. You know what, though? For Charleston, that was, for me, the mildest summer conference yet. I agree. It was, yeah, it was actually not tolerable. devastatingly hot. Yeah. Right? Man, sometimes yeah. it just feels like I feel like melting wax out on the sidewalks of Charleston. But you had a good conference, Tim? I did. I had a really good conference. I was less exhausted than I usually am. I went to some really good talks. I, I had a conversation with um, Dr. Angel Parham. And I was like, oh, yeah. oh man. Yeah, she's great. If I could she's go lovely. back and do a grad degree, isn't she great? I met she was her for the about, first time in person at the conference. I've been following her work, but I was so honored to actually meet her and talk with her. Did, did I tell you guys about the whole Hedgehog Review article that I read? I think I told that on the air. I, I read this article from the Hedgehog Review. You say a lot on the show, and it's hard to keep up with what's on the show and what's just I know, which is like regular life. Um, so forgive me if I'm telling this story twice. I read this article in the Hedgehog Review, and... I got to the end of it and I was actually listening to it on audio because Hedgehog Review gives you an option to just listen to a reader. And I got to the end and I was like, man, that was a great article. And it said, Dr. Angel Parham. And I was like, wait, <laughs> I know her. This is probably two months ago. And I hadn't actually nice. met her. So at the conference, so I wrote her a Facebook message and I was like, Dr. Parham, I love this article that you wrote. And I didn't even know it was you until I got to the end. So I got to visit with her more. And she nice. is kind of... Um, I don't know that starting is the right word, but she is at the front edge of this PhD program at the University of Virginia in sociology, which is like maybe 
Hmm. I mean, it's, it's not misleading, but it sounds like it's a lot broader than sociology. It's a five-year program hmm. kind of preparing students for a PhD to enter um, their PhD work, five like full years of funding, all sorts oh, of wow. internal opportunities. Um, and she's like Wait. begun her search for looking for really good students. And I was like, oh man. Like, like college, college age students. Yeah, so college like kids coming students. Out of high school. Yeah, like, right. You don't have to have your master's. Um, this is kind of a segue. This is University of Virginia? University of Virginia, man. University of Virginia is legit. Legit. And Dr. Wait, so Parham the- is like, man, I would love to study under her. Me so too. is there like a classical connection or something because with the conference or? Yeah, the, the whole goal, goal of the program is understanding the contemporary world in light of the problem of the good. So one of the three mm. transcendentals, the true, the good, and the beautiful, they're really focused on understanding the contemporary world in the light of the problem of the good. It just sounds great. And it sounds not eclectic, but it kind of, it sounds like it cuts across discipline. So it's um, under the umbrella of sociology, but you'd, you know, be studying historians and philosophers and political scientists. I was just jealous. Sounds like something you would have been doing like at Gutenberg yeah, or something. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, if I, I, if anybody is interested for themselves or for their kids, reach out to me on Facebook and I can make sure that you get in touch with Dr. Parham. That's like highly endorsed. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a, I mean, I mean, that's like the kind of people you meet at the conference, right? Yeah, exactly the kind of right. Exactly right. Yeah, that's what the seriously so, conference yeah, you get, is you're all like, about. You're swimming in that kind of right. That kind of conversation, right. I think. Um, but and, yeah, Angel's amazing. She's a really sweet person and and very accomplished yeah. too. Very smart. Um, well, I guess we should talk about a month in the country, huh? I guess because so. we could reminisce about people and you know our weekend and all that. Did for, you guys talk to hours. people during the seriously conference about? A month in the country. Uh, here it and there, come up here and there. People yeah. came up. People mentioned it. Yeah. Did you? A couple times. Nothing yeah. like in depth. People just mentioned that they like the book a lot. That seemed. It seemed like maybe there was a leading question. No, no, no. There, like no, no leading <laughs> intended. Okay. Well, that leads us into the questions that we got sent. And here's one from, from Jack. And we knew we had to talk about this particular character from the book, but Jack says, please discuss Moon in the Q&A episode. Why do you think Carr chose this particular name for this character? And there's several questions related to, to, uh, to Moon in general. So uh, Heidi, I'll turn to you first. What do you think um, is the purpose of, of Moon in this book? Why, why is he here? Um, I, we had several questions about his homosexuality and why it was there. Cause it, some people feel like it gets, it gets brought up and then it gets drops. Mm. And is it just kind of like car bringing up a contemporary issue or whatever? So I think we should talk about as many moon related things as possible. <laughs> um, and you know, we can talk creators or something later. Let's, let's nice. focus on, on, uh, on this moon. So, so, uh, Heidi, what do you think? Yeah, Moon, I think, is necessary for a couple of reasons uh, in the novel. I think, I don't know if primarily, but the first thing that jumps out at me is that he is a link between Ox Godby and uh, and Tom Birkin's previous life. Because he's also a war veteran, he can relate to him uh, so that there's this tether, right, between Birkin and Ox Godby and, and, so to speak, 
the the real world, the world that he's come from. Um, and so Moon is able then to to, to relate to Birkin in a way that nobody else can in this pastoral place. And I think that's really necessary for his healing to have somebody to be able to see him and what he's been through. And then also it's Moon who's able to be a witness to Tom Birkin's continual convalescence, right? Like he's able to, to it's him that pronounces the final word. He says, it's time to go. Like you're done with your tasks and says uh, that Ox Godby's nearly sorted you out. Out, right. And it's somebody from the outside who needs to be able to witness that, um, that wouldn't be able to really come from somebody who's been as insulated as Ox Godby is and needs to be. But Moon is that tether between that boundary crossing character who exists in the other world and in this insulated world. I think that's important. Well, okay. So the name though, that was, um, that was one of the questions that, that Jack says, why do you think that, Carr chose this particular name for the character, and he mentions that the crescent moon is what gave away the falling man's Islamic faith. So, Tim, do you have thoughts on that? Well, not on moon in particular. Um, I th- I thought about more about the. Muslim man's identity. I mean, like the question I think that we didn't really talk about was whether or not it's safe to presume, and I think it is safe to presume, that the man who painted the painting was a forced convert of Christianity, right? I mean, sure, there were Muslims that would have converted voluntarily of their own volition to Christianity Mm -hmm. But most converts at the time of the painting would have been forced converts, like the product of militaristic invasions or something like that. And that kind of casts another another hue onto the man's death. So he's learned this, the way to paint and the scene that he painted is one of judgment Um did he retain his Muslim heritage during the painting of the judgment or was he a convert? Is that, do we know from what the book tells us? It's just a speculation on the part of both Moon and Birkin, Tom Birkin. Uh, I, I think that we're left as readers with the best that we can interpret is their interpretation. Like, I think it's given to us not to question, but to accept. Um, So, yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And I think that does tie in nicely with his name that moon is also an outsider figure, right? As a boundary crossing character, he is both outsider and insider, but even mm. that makes him more of an outsider, right? Especially in England, which is a very tradition-bound country. And so uh, that name being associated with the crescent moon, him also being a homosexual, uh, all of these factors kind of take these young men in this in-between uh, generation and put mm-hmm. them beyond the pale, uh, but also at the same time uh, healed by being kind of taken within in this temporary convalescent 
time period. And mm, so it mm. makes, it's very complicated. Um, and, and, and it resists like a nice tidy little box, the same way that the conversion of this Muslim painter does that we, we don't have any nice tidy little boxes to put people in, which we had before the war. And I think that that's kind of the whole point. Um, like, I don't think we need to go down the rabbit hole of all the details of it as much as just this is an exploration of multiple characters who are united and yet separate and just letting that be complicated. Mm. I'm trying to find this other question here about somebody say something more because I'm trying to find this follow up question. Somebody, well, what, <laughs> I would, what I would like to say here is. I'd like to say something really, I guess, important is what I would like to say. Yeah, you'd I like, want to hear yeah, that. You, I want to it hear important gr- it would be great if you. And it'd what, be great if you could pull that off. Yeah. So let yeah. me first think of what that important thing is, having really like, set the table. Do you just table. want to say something important? So you're going to try to think of something important? Or you have something important to yes. say and you're trying to figure out how to formulate it? No, I want... <laughs> to say something important and I have not thought about what it is. I really think we really should just exciting. let him get, <laughs> get himself out of this. No, please come to my rescue. So, okay, well, Russell, I, I'll come to your rescue. Russell, he, he posts what he says is a mini rant. He has a question too, but um, he says that he loved the book, but he thought the Muslim storyline was fanciful and implausible parentheses, contemporaneous Muslims would have been decidedly few in number. And where did a man whose faith forbids representational art become a master of it? Okay, I thought you know the what? subplot about moon That's sexuality gratuitous throw in for more audiences, for more modern audiences. So he rants, he has, I want to go to his question a little later, yeah. but um, go ahead. You want to respond to this? Well, I just, it's a great point. I mean, Muslims are forbidden they they are forbidden of representing i think it's either it's definitely not allah and i don't even think that you can represent the face if not all of muhammad the prophet and so it does seem like a little bit of a problem like it's not inconceivable that this man could have learned figurative painting representative painting but it does seem like that would be a tall mountain to climb right and so i think that the mountain um, must yeah, come Russell's, to Muhammad. That's like the perfect image to use, by the way. <laughs> so the, I, I resonate with the um, uh, Russell's, Russell's question or like his discomfort with that. Th- that kind of resonates with me also. It, in one way, it makes the book more intriguing. On the other hand, we kind of are getting into questions about like historical plausibility. But maybe I'm ignorant. Maybe this is a more common thing, you know, during the medieval world to have um, a Muslim, some a Muslim painter coming to the, coming to England. It seems unlikely to me, but maybe that happened. Um, Heidi, do you have thoughts on that? No, I guess I agree. I think that it's probably pretty easy for me to suspend my disbelief on it because of the story so good and the story is the point um Mm -hmm. but fair fair critique yeah accepted pass (laughs) when i first read the book i thought that the the uh forced conversion went the other way the other way interesting like that he was 
not a Muslim who was forced to pretend to be Christian, but the other way around. And then he came back or like he had been gone off in the crusade and become a Muslim and then came back to England mm. and hid that. And I don't, I did, that's just like, I read it. That was like one of those impressionistic readings you get. Um, but it's weird how that kind of like first impression before, before I had to go back and kind of like re-clarify everything uh, kind of stays with you. So for me, I don't know that I, I just, I can see, I can see why it would, he would, uh, question it, but I don't know that I would call it fanciful or implausible. Actually, okay, two things. First of all, fanciful and implausible. Don't appreciate the idea of those being synonyms there, Russell. Um, but uh, I don't think that I would say that it's um, but was, it maybe was fanciful. Russell but using them as synonyms, was he saying they're two different things? Like I took at him a to minimum, be weighting the words at a minimum, fanciful at a maximum, implausible. Maybe he was just giving us a range, not a synonym. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. But, ne- but then why didn't he say, on a range, I thought the Muslim storyline was on a range of fanciful to implausible. <laughs> <laughs> he trusted that we were well, good readers. Apparently he made yeah. a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were close readers. So um, he, he also asks, though, he, he says that he thinks the subplot about Moon's sexuality to be a gratuitous throw in for more modern audiences. We touched on that briefly a second ago. Heidi, I think you touched on it in your comment there. Do we want to address this though? Because that was a couple, I actually had a couple people come up to me at the conference, I think, and say, what's up? Or maybe it's here in the bookstore. I don't know. Again, real life gets mixed up with, mixed in with all these conversations. But So what do you guys think about that? Heidi, do you want to, do you want to jump yeah, on that? I mean, I already s- said what I think about that. I think that he needs Moon to be an outsider. And this was a yeah. way to do that. Um, and he is like this i don't i don't know that i mean when was the book published 1980 is that right yeah yeah um homosexuality would not have been quite on the forefront of contemporary thought at that time that it is now and um and and certainly at the time of world war 1 like that he might even just be drawing attention to to the way those men were treated during war. And I, I do, my heart does go out to Moon for what he experienced for that, especially having been a war hero. So I, I actually thought it was, it, it added a layer of, in, uh, of complexity that I, I thought worked within the novel. It didn't feel gratuitous at all to me. How about you, Tim? Yeah. Yeah, it didn't feel gratuitous at all to me, especially like during the publishing of the book. I'm just going to say what you already said, Heidi. In 1980, they weren't in the middle of like huge, you know, political arguments over gender and sexuality the way that we are in 2022. So, I mean, it's not as if um, discussions of homosexuality were completely absent from the public square, but they just weren't raging like they are now. So it just didn't strike me. Yeah. As there's, gratuitous. There's, to me, there's two things. One is what you're saying there. Like today, because there are a lot of works that are made mediocre because culture war stuff is put in them to be culture war stuff. Yeah. We have, we like, we become hyper vigilant of it. Whatever you think of the issue on both sides of this, all kinds of culture war issues gets tucked into art to make a statement and it diminishes the work of the art, both from a conservative and from a liberal perspective. Yeah. That's just 
So we are, I think a lot of readers now are hyper vigilant about that in a way that they wouldn't have been then. Second, I mean, you can read Sigfrid Sassoon, you can read the books of Evil and Wa, like those, these issues were front and center among- Swirling in World War, uh, among, World War I. They weren't like debating them the way we are now, but they certainly were part of like yeah. um, a whole range of masculine identity in, in England in the early 20th century. So um, I think it actually um, is pretty in keeping with- um, with the world that, the, that these guys came from. Yeah, agreed. Well, and I, I want to add even more to that. I agree with that. I also think that one of the one of the things that we're left with after the month of the country is these series of relationships that have been very healing to Tom Birkin and also complicated for Tom Birkin. And and mm-hmm. and that yeah, yeah. without some kind of of a layer of complexity to moon, he would have just been like the best friend I needed. And then it would have been a neat little box. Right. And so they had to have Mm -hmm. something there to complicate that friendship. And, and it Mm -hmm. could have been something else, but it was in, on a literary sense is it could have been something else could have been a betrayal or they both liked Alice or, you know, something like that. But Mm -hmm. instead it was this that adds yet another, layer of complexity mm-hmm. and other layer of fragility and mystery that I think is really important that Tom feels that about all of these relationships that have been both healing and wounding in their own way in this time. Yeah. There's a, there's a dramatic tension that you have to have in there to avoid it becoming like saccharine um, or like sentimental. Um. Okay, Russell, I, and I had to add that because I was uh, looking for the rest of this question. <laughs> Otherwise, we would just be sitting here listening to silence, listening to the sound Waiting of for my Tim silence to come scroll. up with something really important. Important. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We'd be waiting for okay, a here long it is. time. So, Russell, his rant, uh, finally over. Uh, his words, not mine, says, uh, to what extent might we view this as a response or at least an alternative to the post-World War I modernism of the lost generation of Americans and contemporary rejections of the old order, such as European futurism? Like Wah, Carr seems to acknowledge that the old order was decrepit, but is still tinged with measures of nostalgia and trepidation about what comes next. Tim, I know this is a big topic for you. You spoke about it at our retreat when we were talking about Wah. Um, and so I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. Um, do you, do you need me to read that question again? No, let me try it. And if I totally misanswer it, you can just be like, that's not what Russell was talking this, about. This is your chance to say something smart by repeating what, what Russell said. <laughs> um, maybe it is kind of like looking back at the lost generation and their kind of assessment of life after world war one. And maybe our author is kind of saying, okay, here's a different vision. You know, this is, this is what brought healing. If that was the case, and it may be, it totally may be, I would want to see more um, allusions to the kind of signposts of those early reactions. Because so many, the lost generation is such a known quantity in literary circles that I would have wanted... Um, in some way for our author to make allusion to them to say, Hey, and I'm weighing in with another kind of a third way of viewing this life after world war one. I have a different kind of vision of what might bring healing reunion, um, during those years. 
Does that make sense? Like, like if you're going to write a response to Dante's Inferno, you might pluck some characters from Dante's Inferno and, you know, make allusion to them in your book because you're giving your readers help. Look, this is the kind of like milieu that I'm trafficking in. But mm-hmm. our author doesn't really do that, which makes me think yeah. it might just be a book written in 1980 that is set after the war, but it's not trying to kind of um, wade into the literary responses of those early post-World War I years. Hmm. What, what do you guys think? Do you think it's, so, it's a say response? That last, say that last bit again. You don't think it's... I don't think it is. I don't think it's a response. It's, I think it's happening during the same years, and yeah, yeah. thus it's responding to the same um, travails that everyone who lived after World War I was experiencing, but I don't think he's like wading into the literary conversation that occurred back then and offering a different response. I think he's... Got it, okay. Does that make, yeah, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah, okay. Just wanted to clarify that do last you, Do bit. you guys uh, disagree? Do you agree? Heidi, I agree with you. I agree with you. However, I know what I think about it. And I like Russell's positing. Like I like what he proposes. Um, and, and so I think because of that, that's the lens through which I read this novel. And, mm. and I find plenty of support for that within the novel. However, yeah. I think if I was coming at it from the opposite perspective, you know, away with the old order and, and, and in with this new, you know, secular world or whatever, um, down with tradition, blah, blah, blah. I think I could find plenty of evidence in the book for that too, which I think is why it's great. Like Mm. it's complex. Mm. It's got, uh, multiple, it, it doesn't flinch from what's good and nor what's hard. Um, it's not, uh, I, I like wouldn't be able to use it to propose traditionalism, um, but I can find traditionalism woven throughout it. Same on the other side, right? Like it couldn't, you, I don't think you could use it to support revolution, but you can see the, you know, kind of the grief and the corruption of, of what's come from forced conversion, those kinds of things within the story. And I, I think that's what makes it a masterpiece and why we should read it and why in the world isn't this more widely read? So mm. good. <laughs> so one of the reasons I love um, the Facebook group is because we get great qu- comments and then people respond to the comments with great thoughts of their own. And uh, oftentimes these comments are proof of them, that these being very well-read people themselves. And Jim Ventola responded to Russell's um, question his uh, his little his uh, rainy rant with um a paragraph from an article that rosemary mcgurr wrote in criticism and she says that one of the things that makes this novel great is that moon uh might be actually misreading the evidence in a way that complicates the novel so i want to share this paragraph which this was in criticism in 2005 by rosemary mcgurr and the article is called um, it's not, it's not all that easy to find your way back to the middle ages, reading the past in the month of the country. So, so just, I'm just going to throw this out there just to add a little chaos. Yeah. So this is, this is Jim quoting Rosemary. 
Quote, one of Moon's questionable readings in both the novel and the film is his argument that Piers Hebron was excommunicated for converting to Islam to save his life after being captured while fighting against Muslims. Moon here jumps to conclusions rather than considering all the factors that might be involved. Men from England who fought in Spain, Eastern Europe, and the Middle East in the late Middle Ages did not always fight in defense of Christianity. Often, especially if they were younger sons, they fought as mercenaries in search of income, and sometimes they fought in the service of Muslim overlords. Even if Christian mercenaries did not convert or fight for Muslim overlords, they became subject to excommunication in the 1360s when Pope Urban V used this punishment to control the increasingly large numbers of professional soldiers who fought independently rather than as part of church-sponsored expeditions. The crescent pendant in the medieval man's casket may have been part of a mercenary's booty or a recognition of courage during service to a Muslim overlord, just as Moon's military medal takes the form of a cross. But Moon does not consider these possible explanations when he reads the crescent pendant as a sign of conversion and conversion as the cause of Piers Hebron's excommunication. So I just thought that's interesting to throw out there. And one of the things I love about this novel also, we can talk about that if you want. We can talk about the way that seems to complicate things. But one of the things I love about this book is that for as slight as it is, it has, it's rich. You, when you reread it, you'll get new questions and new insights and you'll find you can, you're always going to be discovering new things. Um, and I think, you know, it can stand up to the kind of essay. to the kind of examination that Rosemary McGurr is putting in that, in, in an essay like that. So I just wanted to share that as well. And shout out to Jim Ventola for sharing that. Do you guys want to comment on that or do you just, we just that leave could, that out there? That could solve the kind of um, uneasiness that Russell had when he's like, okay, if this painter is a Muslim, he comes from kind of like a non-representational painting cultural background. It seems um, unlikely that he would have mastered, and he is a master, that he would have mastered representational painting. Well, well, if Moon has misread the evidence, that kind of covers that, I think, Russell's insight there. That, that addresses Russell's insight. Like, yeah. Maybe Moon just attribute, believes this guy's a Muslim, but there are a bunch of other plausible explanations as to what the painter's background might have been. Well, and I think it that's also consistent with uh, the deeply embedded uh, idea within the story that we are the stories that we tell ourselves. Like we are the narrative. We create internally the narrative of our lives and live into that. And, uh, and so the historical veracity of Moon's claim uh, is less important than Tom Birkin's belief in it. And that seems Mm. uh, consistent with 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 the story and with with the overall kind of narrative choice, um, which I I think is really lovely. It being a first person narrative, right? Because we are uh, we we are bound by the limitations of the narrator and what we know and can mm-hmm. know, and that's the way it's supposed to be. And so to step uh, and 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 I think that's acknowledged within that criticism that you just read, David. Um, the point of the criticism wasn't to undermine Tom Birkin and Moon's point. It was to remind us as readers that even within a story, the characters are the story we tell themselves. And so we're several layers deep into narrative by the time we interpret it at all. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, just to clear, I don't think that she's saying that Carr is making a mistake here. I think she's making, Perhaps exactly. suggesting that Moon might be jumping to conclusions. Um, 
So one of the things that keeps showing up in the comment thread is is people kind of reading this book as if it's a mystery. There's this identity of these figures and just as Tom and Moon are trying to figure out who these people are, so we're trying to figure it out as readers. So we have this crusader figure who's buried and then the question, and then Tom and Moon believe that they're the same person. Do you, do you think that the book is clear that they're the same person? Because that was something that people kept saying that they were confused about. No, I don't. I, I just don't think it matters. Like I, I am less concerned about the mystery of who this painter is than I am about the mystery of who Tom is becoming and how he's being shaped by what's going on here in, in Ox Godby. And so it seems to me that it's left intentionally ambiguous so that Tom can wrestle with that. And therefore, we have to let that be ambiguous so that Tom can wrestle with it. I agree. I agree with Heidi. Totally agree with Heidi. I mean, it is it's a fun mystery to kind of delve into. And I think and I think. How do I say this? I'm going to try to make a complicated point, and I don't know that I have like the ability to do it. Would you describe it as important? Well, yeah, it's it seems like it's really important. Oh, I get what you're saying now. Sorry, Heidi. I missed, I missed the cue. What I'm about to say is really important. Now, I, the, sim, the, the importance of the man's identity, the painter's identity, kind of jumps out from the narrative as something important to figure out. But because it's a little bit ambiguous, because so much history has passed, the identifying the, the kind of symbolic meaning of the man's identity is hard. And so I think the safe path and the right path is what Heidi has suggested. We, this is what Tom thinks is what's most important for us as readers. And that's the most important thing. I'm just, again, I'm just parroting back to you what Heidi said more eloquently. Who said it more eloquently, Heidi or you? Heidi said it more eloquently. Oh, Isn't that what okay. I said? <laughs> you said I'm parroting back what Heidi said more eloquently. And I'm just making sure that you're not saying that you're parroting it back more eloquently than Heidi oh, said no. it. I think you said <laughs> it beautifully. Be really... And I would be completely fine with that claim. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's see. What do we want to do next? Um, I am parroting with great eloquence what Heidi said. Gabrielle has as she puts it, many questions. First, why does young Kathy get on so well with Tom? And what is the significance of the fact that she instantly seems to see what he sees? E.g. that the dying girl really won't get well again. Oh, yeah. I actually really like that question. Um, so kind of pulling back from the realm of the of the falling man and into delightful Kathy. Um, she is... I think she's important because she's she has this freshness and innocence to her, but also along with that, she also has this kind of like mantle of tradition and uh, pastoral life that she represents. Um, and so again, she's both. She's both young and fresh and innocent and um, and and unharmed, which I think is important for his healing. Um, and then also 
She is an entrenched inhabitant of Oxdodby that lives this kind of like old life, multi-generational traditional life uh, that, that is also very important for Tom. Do you, do you guys, um, what do you make of the fact that he, Tom, that is sort of opens himself up to her the way he does? Like in the sense that he, you know, he, he, does what she asks. He goes to church. He joins the family. Like she is this, he seems very comfortable around her from the get go. And in a way that like he, he keeps himself cut off from, from other people. I mean, even Alice to some degree, right? Like he sort of is falling for Alice, but he keeps himself a little cut off and then he meets moon. But Kathy seems to be, is it that she's because she's a child, there is something innocent and thus, non-threatening or, or how do you read, how do you read their relationship is from that perspective, Tim? That's how I read it, that she's, she's young and she's like very upfront and she's easy to get along with. And she's, she's kind of vivacious. That's, I, I didn't read too much into it other than she was just kind of a pleasure to be around for Tom, but maybe I'm missing something. Maybe there's something more there, but I just took it as like, yeah, he just really enjoys her company. Well, I think that the wise child archetype is like really, really important in literature. Uh, and and we see it all the time. Lots of books we've read. Who's the, the little sister in Peace Like a River? We talked about her a lot. Um, mm. I can't remember her name right now. Uh, and then also like Charles Wallace um, from A Wrinkle in Time. Like there, that, that, that like wise child, yeah, the wise child archetype's super important. And it's usually for people who need to be healed in some way. And Heidi, is she the wise child or is she just kind of street smart? It seems Probably like the that. other characters yeah. that you described, they're definitely, they're wise. But for More, me, Kathy yeah. strikes me as Beyond like. her years. She's regular yeah. in her years. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and she's not. Yeah, like it's maybe less less archetypal, but it still has that mm-hmm. kind of interesting idea of the the wisdom and innocence of youth kind of guided, like reaching out a helping and a healing hand to guide the jaded, uh, wounded soul out of hell and into, you know, a wholesome life. And that, that yeah. certainly is there with her. There's another question that Gabrielle... Gabriel, Gabriel asks, is it possible that Tom is comforted knowing that in a sense, everyone has their own personal hell to live through? Maybe part of healing for him is knowing just how universal suffering really is, or at least it gives him perspective. Do do you think there's something there, Heidi, that like part of Tom's healing it's not just this bucolic landscape. It's not just the work. It's not just the people, but he identifies with kind of like, the suffering that everybody around him in some way is going through. Right. Agreed. It's a, I mean, it's a very realistic novel. Like it's, it's, it's complicated. Nothing is this like neat little bow, right? And there's no, you know, young woman smoothing his fevered brow and he wakes up and he's fine. You know, like it's, it's <laughs> Unlike hard. in the it's awful hard. new persuasion. 
Right. Yes. Ah. Oh. Thank God that's over. Unlike um, what? Unlike what, David? In the new, per- in that awful new Persuasion movie. Oh, I heard it was awesome. Uh, so Just kidding. I did awesome? not hear that. Oh. I did not <laughs> I hear did that. Not. <laughs> yep. I, which I like. I like that it's so complicated. And he is, he is, you know, still in hell a lot of the time. And none of his relationships there are permanent. And they're all they all end and he's going back to his cheating wife. There's just, so yeah, there is this participate, this sense of participation. And we see that in the judgment image that, um, you know, the, the central unifying image is harsh judgment. Like it's not necessarily yeah. optimistic. Mm. Mm-hmm. So one of the, there's a question here from AJ who says, can you go into the symbolism of Tom being up on his ladder in the heavens, so to speak, and moon digging down below? She mentions that it, you know, Tom mentions it a lot. And there seems to be something that they're getting at more than just the obvious, but AJ says he can't put it. Actually, I don't know if AJ, maybe, I don't know. AJ couldn't put his or her finger on it. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm curious what you guys think of this because it takes, it, you know, you mentioned the painting and it's fascinating that he chooses to put, he chooses to put his character, Cardas, in the midst of this dreadful scene as a form of healing. So he's uncovering, you know, it's not some, you know, imp- impressionist, some lovely impressionistic painting or, or this Christ with the children as you know, Christ the Good Shepherd or something like that. It's it's a, depending on how you look at it, depending on which part of the painting you look at, it's a little bleak. It's a, it's a little harsh. It's, it's complicated. So yet the act of uncovering that particular kind of painting is healing for Tom. Well, how, so how, how does that work? Like, how does he get there? Like, what, what is and what is Carr saying? I mean, is it purely that the act of, um, you know, preserving something old is is a is a healing thing for him? Is it the painting itself healing him in some way? Heidi, what do you think? I think that the painting itself is is healing. I, I think it's the stripping off of the whitewash and the looking at it. Um, I. I mean, because because I am a Christian, I see something more. But I think within the story, there's this awakening to himself, the society he dwells in, and the spiritual world. Again, from from his like deadened state after living in hell, Passchendaele's hell, and 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 he is obviously suffering from PTSD and combat trauma. And so he has to reawaken and come back alive again. And so as he, as he ascends up the ladder in order to, what's complex, like you said, the imagery is so complicated as he's ascending up the ladder, his fascination is with the descending man. And, and that's where the restorate, that's where the most intense restoration happens for him is is his attention to the fall as he is making his way upward in the church and um and stripping off the whitewash and stripping off the whitewash in the story seems to be equated with rejecting the church the church itself is the whitewash 
the traditions of the church have covered the primal image. And yet that primal image is essentially Christian. And yet is it because there's this forced conversion piece. And so it's, it, the, the, it's so complex that it's elusive to interpret. Um, and then of course, like you said, moon digging around, looking for bodies, um, and kind of living his own version of hell with this highly symbolic name that's that's you know usually associated with femininity and yet he's a homosexual and he's the one who knows where everything is located but he saves it to the end like it's so mm -hmm. there like if you're trying to just like symbolically analyze it we're going to be here for a hundred years like it's such a rich <laughs> collection of images and so i'm kind of content to think about it for sure but let it wash over me and let it remain a bit convoluted and just kind of like be dazzled by how awesome it is it seems to me i like what you're saying heidi because it seems to me like this book is ripe for symbolic interpretation but its use of symbols, I would say its symbology is kind of a soft symbology as opposed to someone like um, a writer like Flannery O'Connor. Like, man, her prose is so ripe to like crisp and clear symbology. The misfit shoots the grandmother how many times? Three times. And it's like three means something. It means so much in the Christian tradition. And she's so firmly embedded within the Christian tradition that I would call that kind of like a hard symbolism. You know, like if you walk away from Flannery O'Connor, not kind of tying her symbolic activity into the narrative, you're probably not getting as much, but it seems to me like this book, it's ripe for symbolic interpretation, but it just seems like these symbols are softer, more malleable, this moon, what does moon mean? And should we more closely associate it with the moon and crescent of Islam, or should we more closely tie it to moon's traditional association with femininity? You can, you could take it either way. So that's or why the I'm gonna, seasons or the or seasons, the tides, right, 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 right. Or something being partially full. So I don't want to say that the symbols aren't important. I just think like coming, like really drilling into a symbol as used in this book and saying, this is what it means. No doubt locked in. It might be lead toward more confusion rather than clarity. I think that makes this kind of Shakespearean where yeah, you can agreed. read, like you could, like Shakespeare has these symbols in there, but they often can mean so many different things. And that's why for centuries, people have been interpreting them according to a, you can like every, every lens of interpretation there is or criticism can come up with an alternative view of what Shakespearean symbolism is. Um, there's this on page 83. We may have talked about this in one of the episodes. Um, I guess it would have been last week. Uh, this it kind of, it seems like Carr knows this conversation is part of reading his book because it says, first two paragraphs, this steady rhythm of living and working got into me so that I felt part of it and had my uh, part of it and had my place a foot in both present and past. I was utterly content, but I didn't know this until one day Alice Keach said, you're happy, Mr. Birkin. You're not on edge anymore. Is it because the work is going well? Of course she was right. Anyway, partly right. Standing up there on the platform before a great work of art, feeling kinship with its creator, cozily knowing that I was a sort of impresario conjuring and teasing back his work after 400 years of darkness. But that wasn't all of it. 
There was this weather, this landscape, thick woods, roadsides deep in grass and wildflowers, and to south and north of the Vale, low hills, frontiers of, of a mysterious country. And it's like, he, she comes to him and says, you're doing better. Tell me why. And, he, and she says, it must be because of the work. And he says, well, you know, the work is going well. And like, it's as if Kara is saying, yes, the work is part of it, but there's also something more mysterious mm. and the place itself has a mystery. And mm. the, what heals people it's, is, is whether it's, whether it's metaphorical or it's real life, mysterious. And he is, Carr is, is taking the notion of symbolism, I think, dramatic symbolism, and he's employing it really richly, but then he's also telling us, and he comes, I think he right here is telling us, these things are complicated and the way we heal and the way we change and the way we grow and the way we become someone new is mysterious. And it often is not something we can know until we look way back. And those, the things that were, that when you're living through something, it's not a symbol, right? It's an experience. And you look back at the end of your life and you think, well, that's, that almost could be a symbol. You know, it's too coincidental to be, to be anything but symbolic. But when you're living it, you're just in the moment Mm. trying to survive, trying to become something new. Uh, or even if you're not trying to become something new, it's just one way or the other, something's happening to you. Uh, but that's all, that, that's all very mysterious. And I think Carr is masterful at, at helping us experience both sides of those things and allowing us to think about the symbolism, but also reminding us the nature of lived experience yeah. is more mysterious than the symbols yeah. can be them can be if you just look at them as symbols. Um, so anyway... Um. Anybody want to respond or take issue with what I said? Not at all. Other questions? Not at all. Um. Hey, um, Erica asks if there's any books that explore the implications of World War One, especially from a Christian perspective. Either of you want to uh, touch on that? Well, I Tim, I imagine you've probably I'm had a bunch, but both of you Tim probably on this one. Well. I have a kind of complicated relationship with Francis Schaeffer's old books because they were really, really instructive for me. His old books, I'm thinking of books like Escape from Reason. Like I kind of look back and I think that some of his scholarship is um, shallow. I don't know a better way to say it. And I'm saying that about someone who I have the utmost respect for. Um, So I'll say... Francis Schaeffer, because I think he does a good um, job of giving broad swaths of history in kind of like bite-sized chunks. So if you're kind of new to Western civilization, I think he's a good place to start. Maybe somebody like Susan Wise Bauer, if you want to go a little bit deeper. And if you want to go even deeper, um, Oh gosh, the story of history by um, the husband and wife team. What are their names, you guys? I'm so bad. What is wrong with me? I'll think of it by the end of the show. I've never read that. George and Martha Washington? No. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Just throwing husbands and wives out there. Right, right. right. No, I'll think of it in a second. (laughs) I think after virtue is a good option too to explore kind of the the, the development of ideas yeah. over time. Uh, it's less heavy on the historical events and more on the development of of ideas into how we have arrived where we're at now. 
Yeah. Tim, do you agree with that? I do. The only, I mean, I love him and you know that I love him, Heidi. I he's know. just so intimidatingly, he's just so heavy. Yeah. Agreed. It's like, yeah, it's hard work. Will Durant is who I was trying to think of. Oh, Will, oh, oh Will and Ariel Durant. Yeah. 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 Not presidents. Not the presidents. Indeed. Right. So when I was growing up very, very young, my dad was reading those. So there's a picture of me being like, I think I was like a week old and my dad's holding me while reading. Oh, is that, that, that picture? Yeah. Like he's, he's like laying up, he's sitting up in bed and he's got his shirt off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen, I love that. That's my picture. favorite picture of your dad. I love that yeah. picture. So he's, so he was going through, he was probably, I mean, I, he would have been like 23 or four or mm-hmm. something when I was born. Mm-hmm. So he's reading, he was reading that whole series. And that, I think that series, Will and Ariel Durant's book, there's like 16 of them, maybe um, a little difficult to find now. kind of collectible if you have original editions, by the way. And so do not throw your dust jackets away. I can speak to you uh, from the experience <laughs> of all the booksellers, Gold, of all the people books. who come into my store without the dust jackets on those and want a lot of money for them. Um, but the, that series was really formative for him in terms mm. of his really digging it deep into the, I mean, he read all of them. And, you know, he, he told me, he's told me before about how when he got to that end, when he finished it, what is, you know, that's thousands and thousands yeah. of pages. It took him years. Um, so that, that, yeah, that's a great one. Um, and that, for those of you who don't want to have a, you know, thousand super, page reading experience. Well, what I was going to say is who don't want to have a, um, they, Will and Ariel Durant were not particularly enamored by the Judeo-Christian tradition. Mm. So you're not going to get that as, you know, if you want to kind of, she asked for specifically Christian books. That's true. But, but they're not, they were not, I don't believe Christians. And but that's such, such respect for the tradition. Right. right exactly. And, and, but it, 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 you know, for those of you who kind of want to see from some variety of perspectives that yeah. they're, but also just historically, they're really compelling, yeah. compelling writers. Uh, let's see. Lots of comments in here. Lots of comments, which makes it hard to sort through. Okay. This is an interesting question. This is from Zena, who came to the retreat. Shout out to Zena. Um, she says, I have a lot to say about this little novel because I love it so very much. However, I was wondering if you all found Alice Keech's introduction a bit disconcerting. To set up the scene, it's a very hot day, and so he lies in the stone slab over Elijah Fletcher's tomb. He's put a kerchief over his eyes and gone to sleep, much like Tim does. Um, <laughs> he wakes to find Mrs. Keach leaning against the limestone wall, having watched him for a good 10 minutes while he slept. How does this set the tone for their relationship? Mm. She says, some of the most unnerving mother moments have been when I've been in a deep sleep and have woken up in the middle of the night only to find out a child has been standing over <laughs> me watching, willing me awake with their stares so they can ask me a question. Perhaps this is why Alice's intro seems not so meat cute to me. <laughs> Uh, it is an odd way to have them meet. Uh, Heidi, thoughts on Alice being a creep? Uh, first off, shout out to Zena because Zena reads like a poet. She is a poet. Mm. Um, and so she she catches these like beautiful little human details like that. Um, yeah. That I just find very lovely. Um, I, I do think that like it, there, she is... Alice Keach is uh, almost, she's not motherly in this sense, like that there's not any motherly feelings that he has towards her. Um, they're all a different kind of feeling. Um, but she, 
she's almost like a guardian right over him and she sees him um in this really beautiful and healing way for him and um and that's what creates this bond and so i do think that that the whole point is that he's in a stupor or a slumber like he's not there and he's he's lost and and she wake she wakes him up like she enlivens him and gives him back his life and um and so the fact that the first thing that she does there i mean their meeting is her watching him sleep and then uh being you know her image is present in front of him when when he finally awakens i I think that that's very symbolic and kind of lovely although it's also adulterous so that's also complicated Mm. everything's so complicated man being human is a lot of work so i want to talk about that because i think that one of the things that is awakened that is part of his awakening is as you've put it heidi a sense that he you even talked about this in, the, in your column this month, which went up yesterday or went up on Wednesday. We're recording on Thursday. He, part of his awakening is a reminder that he is a good man. Like he makes right. the right choice here. And part of making the right choice is the, 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 you can't make the right choice unless your conscience is tested or your, you know, or however you want to put it. And so I think that he, part her desirability to him and his is part of his awakening because he makes the right choice he 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 resists what the natural his natural inclination would be and that that the process of being tempted and doing the right thing is part of his is part of his awakening it's not you know war is one of the people lots of people have written about this the war is one of the your conscience gets tamped down it gets, it gets, um, you have to kind of put it, set it aside because it's so much of it becomes about survival. And he kind of alludes to that in this book here and there in little subtle ways. And I think that that's like a huge part of war literature. In fact, is the question of what happens to your conscience mm. and thus to your soul mm. when you are put in those circumstances. Um, it's not just that your body might die, but, but that you, you have to make compromises. Gets, Right, exactly. And so I think the awakening of his conscience is an essential part of this book. And his conscience is awakened by having to decide how to respond to her desirability. And so I, th- I think while it is adulterous, it would be adulterous, adulterous for him to act, for, for both of them to act according to what they desire. Um, it's important that she has to be part of his awakening for all these reasons Agreed. that I'm saying here. I'm trying to figure out how to end this thought while also looking for more questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Tim, it's Tim's turn to say something important. And you got to go. We got to wrap this up. So Tim, let's, 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 this is a good place to end. Let's talk about, let's finish but with Alice and then we'll wrap it up and, and uh, go on to Loris next week. It's, it's interesting to me that most of the action surrounding Alice is Alice watching. You know, she, she's not a verbose character at all. Um, we meet her and she's watching Tom. And then most of the rest of their relationship is her sitting in the back of the church while he does the work. And she's sitting there quietly, but she clearly sees him. She sees the work that he's uncovering and she knows, it seems like she knows him pretty deeply despite very few words being exchange. And I, I, I think you're both right. Like 
so much of the healing that she brings to Tom is just seeing him. Mm. And that's vice versa, right? That, mm. that yeah, yeah, yeah. And this I, is I think a bad that's important marriage she's I'm, in. Well, and I'm I read this like a woman, and so I look at her and think she's also, he, and I think this is very feminine, right? Like she's she's seeking for healing for herself through trying mm. to be a part of his. Mm. And his, her awakening him to her desirability, as you said, David, and I thought that was beautifully phrased, is also an awakening for herself to her own beauty and desirability. And that is, I mean, that's, I, I see why she loves him, why she's drawn to him, why I, I want him for her just as much as I want her for him. And, um, and because her husband doesn't seem to respond to her beauty in the same way. And so that. Mm -hmm. like yeah. You that, want him to be yeah. her husband to be like him. Right. And, um, and so I think that that's an important, that something that psychologically he's painting her properly, not just as some like object of uh, a feminine desire, like, but, but as a real person who's gaining something from this, that's that, that is a challenge to her as well. Mm. Okay. We need to wrap this up. Mm -hmm. um, Tim, you want to have any final thoughts on this book and then we'll let you go. And I just love it. Let Heidi go. I love it. It's a beautiful mm -hmm. book. Now you like Loris, right? I love Loris. I started reading again and I am like falling in love with it all over again. It's so good. Heidi, it's we so good. I, I threw the task over to you because you've read the book more than I have. Uh, what should we do for the first episode in terms of yet, the number of pages. I promise we, I will get that to you by the time we get this posted. Sorry. Okay. Well then we'll, yeah, we'll get a post out for everybody. Yeah. Heidi's in charge of the schedule for Loris this time, because you know, you know, when you know a book, it's, it's uh, good to be able to make that schedule. Tim, you can leave, get out of here. Bye you guys. See you for Loris. <laughs> Heidi, uh, any final thoughts on this book from you before we go? No, I'm just crazy about it. And I thank you for, <laughs> um, I mean, for, for introducing me to it. So I loved it. Well, thanks to you and Tim for insisting. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, as, as I mentioned at the top, you can uh, hear more of our conversations about all kinds of things over at closereads.substack.com. Uh, That's closereads HQ. Heidi's column, which goes up once a month is there uh, for the subscribers. We've got East of Eden conversations. We've got uh, lots of other things coming. We've got a few book reviews coming up from some guest reviewers. And, Tell them about and, persuasion. Uh, oh, and yeah, and we we recorded a a watch along. I hate watch along. Sean Johnson, Heidi, and I watched Persuasion. We clicked play at the same time, and we recorded ourselves having an experience that will not be forgotten soon enough. <laughs> right, right. Thank you for ending. That, that is quite a movie. Like and you can listen to, you can listen to us, uh, hate watch it as we go. Uh, but also comment on the, the wardrobe choices, lots of good wardrobe choices. Um, as far led, as it goes, the charge um, led on that was by David Kurd, by the way, I appreciated that. Oh no. I, yeah. I'm all, you, it, yeah. it was lots of nice, nice clothes. Uh, some weird choices in some of the, some of the clothes, but, but definitely also some very good choices. <laughs> I need that uh, so yeah, jacket. Check. That was the best part of the movie. I know. For, Mary. I, I know yeah. for real, <laughs> for real. Yeah. Mary, Mary was good. Yeah. Some weird hat choices. Um, lots of weird hat choices, actually. Some, some hair choices. It was like a lot of um, good choices for wardrobes 
if you were watching it was a, a movie totally different that era. was about <laughs> World War II. Yeah. Uh, it was, if it was like, if it was, if it was, uh, what, what do we, Howard's End, if it was Howard's End, the choices would have been great. I mean, she looked great. The characters looked great. Not always very Regency, uh, <laughs> Regency England. Yeah. Now, some of them were Regency ish. Um, but, you know, if you like costume choices, beautiful scenery, and uh, interesting homes, this movie is for you. If you want literally anything else from Jane Austen book, this is not for you. But you can listen to oh, us. How long is? For an hour and 45 minutes, yeah. Um, so just go on. You can hit play at the same time we do and watch along. Or you can watch it and you can listen. Or you can not watch and you can still listen to us just skewer it. So uh, that is, that's actually probably up now. So for those of you who um, who are subscribed, you can you can get that over on Close Reads HQ. So, all right, Heidi, let's wrap this thing up. Thanks so much. Let's do it. Till next time, happy reading. <laughs>